Hello, and welcome back to this podcast series. Recently, we've been doing podcasts looking at different bits of pharmacy and asking, what's the point of that existing? But, you know, in a positive, uplifting kind of way. And we are going to continue with these. Coming soonish, what's the point of pharmacy procurement? But we're still interested in critical appraisal and how we think about questions. So today, so we don't get out of practice, we're going to go back to critical appraisal and critical thinking things and have a look at the Kennelkoff vaccine. Have a look at what we're really trying to do when we're looking at risks and how we can maybe approach things when we can't put a definite number on things. So that brings us to the Kennelkoff vaccine, which is a dead good thing to look at for this. As we all know, Kennelkoff vaccine is a live vaccine containing attenuated Bordetella bronchiseptica. It protects dogs against Kennelkoff. It's generally considered a good thing to vaccinate your pet against it. But we tend to be interested in humans, and as you've probably worked out by now, you don't give Kennelkoff vaccines to humans, at least intentionally. So why are we interested? Well, guidance is that because it's a live vaccine, Anyone who's immunosuppressed should avoid contact with a vaccinated dog for six weeks after vaccination, which is quite a long time to hide from a dog if it's your dog. And there's a mountain of puppies around at the minute too. According to Statista, over the pandemic, dog ownership went up from 23% of households just before to 34% of households just after. The pandemic has a lot to answer for. There's nearly double the number of dogs in the UK now compared to 2010. So with this mountain of dogs and new puppies, there's also loads of kennel cough vaccines to give. And because it's a numbers game, this means that there are more immunosuppressed individuals coming into contact with these dogs. Therefore, the question of whether people really need to hide from their own dog for a month and a half is cropping up more and more. So this is where we get to the interesting bits. Advice is to avoid contact for six weeks because there's a theoretical risk of catching the bug yourself from the live vaccine. But equally, people are inexplicably attached to their dogs, so don't want to lock them away for that long. How do we square the circle? What's our advice? Well, the first question is, what are we trying to achieve for the putative patient? The standard answer would be to minimise the risks they're exposed to. But that's a potentially unhelpful way to think about things. You'd minimise your risk of being injured in a car crash if you never left your home, but that's not feasible. So we instead try to reduce the risks to an acceptable level. You have to have to pass a driving test, wear a seatbelt and not use a phone whilst drinking beer whilst at the wheel. We're not really trying to minimise the risks, we're trying to optimise the risks. Get it down to an acceptable level where you're not adding in other problems instead. So what do we need to know to be able to start optimising the risks about kennel cough and the immunosuppressed? Well it might be obvious, but we need to think about whose risk we're actually trying to optimise. Then, because we're optimising, not minimising risk, we need to know the preferences of the individual involved, as the balance will be different for different people. But maybe most importantly, we need to actually have a go at expressing the risk. We can't ask people to make a decision if we can't give them reliable information to base their decision on. So let's take the last one first. The information is that there's a theoretical risk for six weeks after immunisation. But what does that actually mean? For lots of people, talking about risk isn't intuitive. Either something's going to happen or it isn't. So saying that there's a theoretical risk may make them overestimate the actual level of risk to them. But if it's theoretical, it means it's difficult to quantify as there's actually no number to use. So what can we do instead? To try and explain it more, we probably need to do a bit more explaining. The risk is because it's a live vaccine given by a spray and the dog could potentially shed the live vaccine bug for a while after. 
But as we talked about before, the UK is fairly overrun with dogs at the minute. So if this was actually translating into a real-life risk, we'd presumably be seeing loads of cases of crossover infections. So are we? Well, not really. A quick literature search turned up a grand total of two cases. A young child who developed a similar infection after their dog had been vaccinated, but genotyping showed it wasn't actually the same as the vaccine bug, so they didn't catch it from the vaccine. And a 14-year-old who developed a cough after they got accidentally sprayed in the face with the vaccine, as the vet missed the dog's nose. And they weren't actually tested for which bug it was, so it could again just be a coincidence. Overall, given the number of dogs in the world, two correlated in time but unconfirmed cases doesn't make much of a pressing case for the need to control the risk. But it might still be worth having a look, depending on whose risk we're trying to optimise. So whose risk are we working on, and does this make a difference? Well, yeah, it does. If we're trying to optimise the risk for the manufacturer, there's very little downside to saying avoid the dog for six weeks after vaccination. So if you were to just say no, that would probably optimise it from their point of view. And the same is probably true for the vet too, and us. There's no real downside for us in saying to avoid the dog or avoid the vaccine. However, if we're trying to optimise risks for the patient, it suddenly layers up the complexity, as it's them that will actually have to do the stuff rather than just recommend from on high and then wander off into the sunset like information-sharing heroes. So just what needs to be considered? Well, it depends on the individual. If the vaccinated dog isn't theirs, but a friend's who they visit, maybe avoiding any of the theoretical risk is proportionate, without any downsides. They can just ask the dog not to come along for a bit. But if it's their dog, and they don't have anyone to look after it for them, the balance is a bit different. It may be that the choice is between them being in contact with the dog, or the dog not getting the kennel cough vaccine at all. And if the dog were to catch actual kennel cough, the risk of the owner catching it will be much higher, so avoiding one risk might add in an even bigger one. So how might we optimise the risk for this person? Well, we can't on our own. We need them to be involved. And for them to be involved, we need to put the risks into context. We don't have a number to quote, as the risk is theoretical. But can we explain even approximately how big a risk a theoretical risk is? What could we say? Could we put it into context of other risks the patient has already assessed for themselves? Well, we could go with explaining that though there's a theoretical risk, it's never been conclusively seen in real life. And given the amount of stuff that dogs roll in, walk through, sniff and eat, the vaccine is probably the least of your worries of what you might catch from them as an immunosuppressed dog owner anyway. If possible, the standard advice is to avoid the dog for six weeks. But if you can't, the risk is really small and can be reduced further by not being in the room when the vaccine is given so you don't get sprayed in the face by an errant vet, not letting the dog lick your face afterwards, and washing your hands which given the general filthiness of the average dog is good advice whether or not they've had the kennel cough vaccine anyway. This way we're explaining the risks as much as we can so that they can know what choices they are making as much as they can and helping them to make an informed decision basing it on personal risk optimization rather than generic risk avoidance. And that's it. Hopefully we've covered how when you say theoretical risk to someone they may overestimate the risks to themselves. So even if we can't put a number value on the risk we do have an obligation to explain it as much as we can and put it in a context the patient can understand. We've also covered how we're not trying to minimise risks, but optimise them for the individual, how the acceptability of a risk profile is different for different groups of people, and also how dogs are feral and you need to wash your hands more. Thank you, and see you next time.